It's 6pm on Friday evening, and myself and the rest of the backbench team are sleep-deprived, totally bamboozled, and desperately in need of some rest. As a Mammoth Election Special, today on Backchat, we've got for you some live reactions from some of our editors, and a media analysis section where we consider the implications of this seismic election on this nation's future. Before we begin, I'd just like to say this. I usually refrain from giving my views on this podcast because I don't feel it to be professional, but the amount of division, vitriol and hate I'm seeing on social media has compelled me to give this monologue. The Labour Party received a catastrophic hounding at the ballot box last night, and yet all I'm seeing on social media is blame blame being given to the voters. They were all old, white and racist, they say. They're all influenced by Rupert Murdoch. This is all Laura Kinsberg's fault. The excuses go on and on and on. There is absolutely zero introspection, no looking in the mirror, and such an air of moral superiority that I'm beginning to think, is this really the same left of Tony Benn that sought to actually win arguments? This new left seems to be the ones burying their heads in the sand, and led by their own social media echo chambers, the It'll Go Higher brand of pseudo-journos, you know who you are, more apologists for Corbyn, for the Corbyn revolution. They failed to see that voters hate being taken for granted. Bastani, Paul Mason, Ashokar, and the rest of the Navarro media canary set. This historic defeat is on you. This is me here, Joshi, and this is Backchat. Enjoy the rest of the podcast. Here now with more news, debate, and opinion. As the exit poll came in at around 10.15, both Daniel and Mahin, um, back. Well, that exit poll really was quite the shock. Um, I mean, I was considering putting a bet on uh, hung parliament, so I'm really quite happy that I didn't waste my money. The, um, I, I would think the, the main question that remains is how long Corbyn is actually going to hang on to being Labour leader, because exit polls can be wrong. But I'd be very surprised if they were that wrong in the difference between a Tory majority and a hung parliament or indeed a Labour majority. I, mean, I suppose the real question is as well, how many people, how many Labour MPs are going to be losing their seats and exactly who they're going to be? I mean, one thing's for certain that this election has certainly become the Brexit election. The Tories played it by their own hand and by the looks of things, I'm in London Bridge Station. I've just seen the exit poll. Um, I think the the only thing you can conclude is can conclude. This is my personal opinion. This isn't a win for the Tories. This is a win for deceit, lies, and money. Mahin had a very stark message for the voters of Blythe Valley that had just voted Conservative for the first time in their history. Conservatives have just taken Blythe Valley from Labour, a former mining constituency. Um, in my opinion, it's like turkeys voting for Christmas. At around 12.30am on Friday morning, Lillian sent me this message that epitomised what a lot of people that wanted a different result felt. I'm feeling pretty shocked. Unsurprisingly, I think most people are, including the Conservatives. I'm trying to be optimistic. Obviously, this isn't the outcome that I hoped for, but it could be look diff it could be different to sorry i'll try that again the outcome could be different to what we're currently seeing in the exit polls 
I think what's just shocking is the fact that no one expected this kind of majority, including that's the kind of majority that's predicted, including the Conservatives. And it's going to be a massive wake-up call, I think, for the left, for Corbyn supporters. What does this mean for the future of the Labour Party? But also for those of us whose perspective has been that the last 10 years have been a complete disaster for the country, not least because of Brexit, but just because of 10 years of absolutely savage cuts to public services, the undermining of the NHS at every opportunity. I think, How does what does this suggest about the left that they couldn't offer a viable alternative to what we've perceived as a complete disaster for the last 10 years? So, obviously, I'm assuming that the exit polls come true. We don't know that. But if they do, I think it's going to, or at least it should, trigger a lot of soul-searching from Labour and from the left. And finally, at around 7.30am, Maheen gave her final thoughts on what what has been one of the most seismic shifts in British politics um, for decades. So, um, you know, it's quite early in the morning on Friday, Friday the 13th. And um, I think what we found is we have a very clear Conservative majority. Um, and I just want to say that, uh, for me, this is devastating. But it is kind of at, at, a, at a level, it comes down to seats. And let me tell you why. Here's a highlight of the evening. I am looking at it on a seat-by-seat perspective. A highlight of the evening was... Um, seeing the seat that my boyfriend lives in, Portsmouth South, um, uh, as a Labour hold, it was expected to swing to the Conservatives, and a Labour hold with an increased majority. Um, that was uh, a really good feeling, because it's a place that I also consider home. Um, and it was a good feeling because I, th- I think it, it represented something of a sentiment in the area that you know people were not happy uh, with the Tories, and that they really respected their local MP, Stephen Morgan. Um, but a very a very low point in the evening was seeing my home home constituency where I was born, where my parents live, um, Haywood and Middleton go to the Conservatives. Uh, it is it's 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 an area of deprivation as well as uh, kind of people who have been middle class who have who, who've kind of struggled and seen their living standards stagnate in recent years. And it was a very heavily pro leave area um, in the twenty sixteen referendum. My my parents. Uh, are Labour supporters and have seen for themselves the kind of disinformation that they've been receiving from the Conservative Party, lies about the Labour MP or the uh, the old Labour MP, uh, Liz McInnes. Um, and I'm very sad for them because I don't feel that they will have the representation they deserve. Uh, Liz McInnes was a fantastic MP, a genuinely fantastic woman. Um, and to lose somebody like that in politics is a really, really sad sign. Um, so that was a really low point. On a personal level, uh, I'm now represented uh, by Labour MP, which is really good for me. I live in London now, work in London, represented by Karen Buck. And I'm very happy about it. And I, for me, as a Labour supporter, I suddenly realised that it suddenly means so much more being represented by a Labour MP personally. Uh, I used to be represented by, actually, um, the Conservative MP Mark Field when I lived elsewhere. Um, and uh, I... Uh, I actually, you know, had these plans when I moved to London to speak to my MP 
about um, the agenda on teaching children about um, domestic violence in schools. And uh, this MP, Mark Field, who's no longer an MP, was the man who grabbed that green piece protester by the neck uh, and forcibly dragged her out of a room. And, you know, I thought at the time, I can't speak to this man about that. This is a man who grabs women by the neck. What does? And I've, see, I've seen his voting record. What does he want to do with women and protecting them from de- domestic violence? And then a reflection on, on kind of the win for the Conservatives. Um, as I said, I... I Yes, there are problems with Corbyn, 100%. Not just the anti-Semitism. There is, and and I've said this before, and I will say this again, the alignment with regimes such as Iran and uh, Venezuela, alignment with regimes that have very fascistic kind of tendencies um, and are authoritarian. um, And and we've seen that, and we've seen seen issues with regards to that, and that has been a massive problem um, for me and my support for Corbyn. But I don't think that those aspects of his personality are what lost him in the election. I think it is the disinformation that people have been fed with, these cost of Corbyn manifest ideas, like people believing that Corbyn is going to steal their money and give it to the undeserving, people believing that Corbyn is going to sell us all off to terrorists. Um, yeah, I don't think that that was ever going to happen, but I think people genuinely believe that. Um, my, my My parents you know, saw it firsthand with that disinformation campaign that they they saw in Haywood and Middleton. You know, people were worried and 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 rightly so to some degree, but also there have been so many lies this election. Um and I I have been very saddened by by the result and I feel particularly sad for my parents who've lost their Labour MP. Um who um are both working in the public sector and both have seen what um Tory funding cuts have done to the public sector. My dad uh, is a GP in the NHS and worked in the NHS um, in the 1980s under Margaret Thatcher and that is the reason, a heavy reason why he will almost never vote Conservative um, because he's seen what happens when people who ideologically do not believe in an NHS get control of the NHS. Um, My dad has seen the NHS being squeezed and people trying to destroy it and it was the workers who kind of saved it, basically. People who were worked, put in those shifts, put in shifts of, you know, plus 48 hours, people like him, uh, just because, you know, they wanted to do their job. They believe in the NHS, and my dad believed in the NHS, and I, I only feel sorry for the new generation of doctors, including my boyfriend, who are probably going to have to put up with conditions where people who ideologically don't believe in the NHS have got their hands on it again. And, and mark my words, it, you know, promises of funding for the NHS don't mean any for anything from the mouth of someone who has been prepared to lie throughout this whole campaign. Moving on to the media election analysis, here's me and Tom Westgarth. On what has been a night of historic proportions, we've had massive swings and potentially seismic political consequences. Um, to digest all the results and provide analysis, we have backbenchers, um, one of backbenchers editors, Tom Westgarth, how are you doing this morning, Tom? Because, um, to be honest, I'm very tired. <laughs> I was about to say, same here. I'm on about four hours sleep because um, I've got some uni work to crack on with as well. But I can always find time to have a conversation about politics with me here. <laughs> I mean, I think if you remember, like, a few... When did we do our first podcast? It was about six weeks ago, seven weeks ago. And, I mean, I don't remember what the predictions were, but I'm pretty confident that we did not predict a conservative majority this large 
No, I mean, we talked about the contingencies under which a majority would occur, and it was going to be if the Tories could make the message about Brexit. But I don't think even we could really have foreseen the collapse in Labour Party support across swathes of the country in the way that it did. Mm. So, I mean, what do we think? Do you think this is a seismic change? I mean, just to give my two cents, I think seeing the Tories win seats like Bishop Auckland and uh, North West Durham uh, is extraordinary. I think I think we've hit a seismic change here. Yeah, I, I think there's been a huge structural change in the way that we need to think about politics. I agree that it's seismic for two central reasons. Firstly, I believe that this was an ideological rejection of Corbynism and a mandate to carry on with Brexit. Even in the areas where um, the Conservatives didn't make gains of seats, the swings were absolutely huge. We're looking at people like Ian Lavery in places like Wandsbeck that lost from majorities of 10,000 to less than 2,000. Across all of the North, across many parts of Scotland, Labour completely collapsed and the Conservatives made gains across the board. Um, but secondly, I think the one central reason why I think it's seismic is because the rules of politics have clearly changed. The way that we understand demographics, the relationship between class and voting behaviour, the relationship between occupation and voting behaviour, the relationship between your um, location relative to cities have uh, changed. And places that we've traditionally called donkey seats, ideas that they're safe <laughs> labour seats, and we just put a donkey on a, la um, a labour ribbon on a donkey and that will guarantee a, a seat um, hold. This clearly isn't the case anymore. And that's been something that I think we need to talk about in the, the weeks to come where we dissect this. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Let's begin with the Labour Party because they've taken what can only be described as quite a drubbing. Um, do you think they're finished? What went wrong, do you think, um, for the Labour Party in this election? Yeah, I mean, there's no one factor. I think there's a lot of people, particularly within the Corbyn movement, which will try and reduce this to Brexit because they want to protect the economic philosophy of Corbynism. And actually, what you've seen is there's been a collapse in support across uh, in particular, Brexit voting areas. So I think it was around 10% of strong leave seats. Uh, or 10, Labour lost 10% of the share of votes in strong leave seats. But they also lost about 6% of the share of the vote in strong remain seats as well. So it's clearly not an issue that is specific to Brexit. It's about the wider Corbyn project more broadly, whether it's talking about the complete manifesto as a whole, not individual policies such as the odd nationalisation and the approach to anti-Semitism and the lack of leadership more broadly uh, surrounding the Corbyn movement. And if you couple that with the smorgasbord of foreign policy baggage that Corbyn has been carrying around for the past 30 years, I think this is a real indication that the country were not comfortable with the idea of a Jeremy Corbyn premiership. So the real question now for the Labour Party is, where do we go? Because the coming weeks, we're going to see an, a battle for the ideological soul of the party. And I'm not quite sure which way it's going to pan out there. I mean, I think what I found really interesting was this election win that Boris Johnson has just achieved. I think to some extent, it was exactly what Theresa May was trying to do in 2017, right? Um, why do you think he succeeded where Theresa May failed? I mean, the the conditions seem fairly similar, but Boris Johnson seems to have come out with a win, whereas Theresa May um, 
Theresa May's election campaign led to a dismal kind of hung parliament. Why do you yeah. think that's happened? And that's a good question. A few things spring to mind immediately. Firstly, you've got to think about the fact that Boris Johnson is the biggest celebrity politician we've had in a generation. He's somebody that has clearly had the ability of cutting through to communities that have been used to seeing him on programmes such as Have I Got News For You and entertaining us at the London 2012 Olympics. This is somebody that has been described previously as the Heineken character, the Heineken mm. politician that can really make waves across swathes of the population, regardless of your background, your um, gender, your ethnicity, et cetera, et cetera. So I think Johnson's celebrity appeal definitely had something to say there. Um, secondly, I think Johnson seemed more hardline on Brexit. Theresa May fundamentally uh, didn't appear to be um, strong enough on her views on Brexit. She was clearly not interested in leaving without a deal. That was very clear. And Johnson's in our role in the world, our rela new relationship with places like America and Europe, reviving our, I want to say, I won't say colonial, but reviving our sort of industrial strategy. And I think this has been quite central in appealing to people that are sick of negativity in politics. They're sick of the negativity of Jeremy Corbyn and the ambiguity or at least um, real lack of drive and vision from Theresa May and Boris Johnson's offered something different. I mean I think something else just on a tangent that struck me is I think CCHQ and the Tory party campaign machine has been on top top form um, over the past six weeks like I've never seen a Conservative party campaign that's so well run I mean how, how much do you think that's played a role? Yeah, yeah, and this is something I wanted to mention as well. Dominic, Dominic Cummings must be feeling like a superstar this morning because <laughs> he has demonstrably shown why he said the things that he did. The digital strategy they had was absolutely on point. I'm very critical of it because I think it's demonstrated a form of postmodern conservatism that will be damaging for democracy. But mm. in the way which they got out the message, remember, this was a short, focused campaign. They focused on a couple of key things, getting Brexit done and the cost of Corbyn. And they kept ramming home those lines again and again. And they could create this arena of doubt and misrepresentation, smashing the truth-falsehood dichotomy. But that left one clear thing, which was that we needed to get Brexit done. And it's clearly cut through with people. And I think that Cummings has clearly had his finger on something that the likes of Nick Timothy, who ran Theresa May's campaign before, didn't have. And I think you know he'll be rewarded, I think, in the future with you know, the ability to rewire, rewire the civil service in the British state in any means that he wants to. I mean, if I was a civil servant, I'd be very, very scared. Because <laughs> if Dominic Cummings is coming for you, that's, uh, that's quite a frightening prospect. Well, yeah, I mean, and this is a big question as well about what's going to come next for the Conservatives, because Cummings is known for being very sceptical of journalists, of the media more broadly, of the civil service, and he will be probably looking to change the nature of the relationship between Parliament and the legislature. And I imagine Johnson said to him, if you give me my majority, I will let you get on with your civil service pet projects. Mm, absolutely. I mean, just... A shout out to Isaac Levido as well. I think there's an article in was it the New Statesman a few weeks ago and it focused on how he's kind of transformed CCHQ and I mean no one could have envisaged them to have done as well as they have done. I think he deserves a lot of credit for their digital strategy and how they've gone about actually focusing on the campaign, right? 
Yeah, absolutely. And digital strategy was very important in this. And you could have a whole podcast dedicated to things like Boris Wave and forms of trolling that the Conservatives absolutely smashed out the park. Um, but I think Cummings really was able to show that a lot of what the Remain crowd did hadn't learned from the results of the 2016 referendum. He really used the exact same playbook, I feel, that he did before. He said that there are areas of the community that just aren't being listened to. It wasn't just the digital, even though that was very important. He thought that there was more to life than things like Twitter and social media. He told journalists mm. to get out of SW1 and actually hear about what other people say. And I think there's a real problem for people that are involved in the real politique that they spend their lives not engaging with communities in this way. They spend most of their time refreshing their Twitter and you're going to get a very different strata of society when you think about um, the world and demographics in that way. I mean, yeah, I think what is interesting is something that David Cameron said a while back. He said that Twitter isn't real life. I mean, if you looked at Twitter on Thursday morning, you were thinking Labour landslide 100% going to happen. Obviously, we knew because we have great knowledge of the polls and stuff that that obviously was not going to happen. But if you looked at the tweets of a lot of people like Aaron Bastani and Ashley Carr, they genuinely believed that Jeremy Corbyn was going to get a majority. I mean, I think that tells you a lot about Corbynism and kind of the Labour metropolitan left, right? I mean, they're so within their own bubble that they just can't get out of it, right? Yeah, and I mean, the whole sort of Corbyn derangement syndrome is going to be very vivid uh, with its unfolding, I believe, in the next few weeks, because ultimately the objective of people within the Corbyn project now is to have a continuity candidate. It's to have somebody that represents the worldview of Corbyn without the same baggage that um, Corbyn and McDonnell have um, had in the past. And that will mean that they will pin it all on Brexit. They will say that, look, all our policies were popular. People liked our ideas on the NHS, on nationalisation. This is a real thing I find frustrating. Like, I don't see how people look at, they look at manifesto uh, pledges from a micro perspective, like on a mm. singular basis, rather than from the macro. They'll say, oh yeah, they like the railway nationalisation, they like X, they like that. But people will start to realise that it doesn't all add up when you have all of these things thrown together in a manifesto. And... Um, and the, another interesting thing I think will be to see who's going to be the chancellor. This is something that's not really been talked about yet. Uh, John McDonnell was the real intellectual roots of Corbynism and was the driver behind the rewiring of the nature between the state and the market. And it will be fascinating to see what his role in the coming weeks are. How does he help to shift the conversation and the discourse? Because I think he'll be very important in choosing his successor. Speaking of Aaron Bastani, Paul Mason, Ashtakar, I mean, a lot of these people, I think I mentioned this six weeks ago, kind of strike me as a very new kind of bourgeois left, as a very metropolitan kind of London-centric. They're more at home in the cafes of Islington than at Miners' Galas in Durham, where Laura Pittock actually lost her seat. Just had to, just had to put that in. Um, but do you think Labour are now at risk of just becoming kind of what I termed as before a London-centric kind of metropolitan bourgeois party, because I see that happening a lot. I mean, if you look at where they've won their seats, they've only just about held on in a lot of areas where they've won in, in for decades, but they've kind of done okay-ish in urban centres. 
do you think this is concerning for them? Because surely there aren't enough seats for a majority in urban centres alone. No, I, I think you're right to say that there should be instant alarm bells here when you actually drill down into the data and the numbers, because this has represented the real coming together of the political realignment that we've talked about in the past. If you think about where the Tories have won seats and won votes, they've started to win over non-graduates, uh, far better than Labour and the uh, Liberal Democrats, who are now seen as the party of graduates. Um, I don't know how that will work out in the long term for the Conservatives when Brexit is eventually done, but we will see about that. Um, Labour Party, Will Jennings from the Centre for Cities, who's a, a political data scientist, um, ran some numbers and found that Labour only did well in big cities. That was the only place where they did better than Conservatives. In towns, in much smaller communities, and um, the Conservatives far outstripped Labour. So that supports your analysis of Labour as a sort of metropolitan bourgeois um, party. But another thing you need to look at is occupation as well. Uh, there's been a huge correlation between uh, having a blue collar job and the swing to the Tories. So the share of workers in routine and non-routine jobs uh, that vote for Tories has um, absolutely rocketed recently. There's been a huge swing from those that are in sort of uh, more routine professions to vote for Conservatives. And Labour are going to have to really go back to the drawing board here. I saw a very funny meme on uh, the Thick of It quotes page, which it was had Hugh Abbott in the back of the taxi. I think it was after the disgruntled civil servant um, debacle. And he said, we're going to have to do a number of things almost immediately. And I think there's going to be a panoply of different issues that the Corbyn project and the Labour Party are going to have to fix very quickly. Otherwise, they will be out of government for at least a decade. Which is ridiculous when you come to think of it, because the Tories have been in power for a decade already, right? I mean, you'd think that by this time in the electoral cycle, the anti-incumbency vote must have been building up, but extraordinarily, Boris Johnson seems to have actually upped his voter share. I think, I, I mean... I don't know about you, but that to me is shocking. Um, I just couldn't believe that. We're so far into an electoral cycle. You should be, the Tories should be making losses and it's just not happening. Yeah, and Brett, this is why I do think that even though you could bash Corbyn a lot, Brexit does have a significant part to play here because that signaled a new era, a new epoch. And I don't know whether... If you're going to play the counterfactual game, if Brexit hadn't happened, would we be looking at a completely different political cycle? I think arguably yes. You can make the claim mm. that Boris Johnson would have still become prime minister in some way because David Cameron would have stood down and he wouldn't have served a third term. Uh, Osborne would have alienated a significant chunk of the uh, parliamentary Conservative Party because of his stance on uh, the European Union, whereas Johnson was the darling. So I think he still would have been PM at some point. Whether he would have won an election, though, without won the background of a Brexit betrayal as his central mantra, and two, potentially too many years of the Corbyn project losing its spark. Because remember, the Labour Party got about 40% of the vote in 2017. So mm -hmm. um, they were a, an electoral force then. But I think people had grown sick and tired of the Corbyn project and the cracks had been exposed over months of further scrutiny and pressure. And it would have been interesting to see if it would have come and done in the same way had there been an election in, let's say, 2018, 
um, under a Remain government. Yeah, I mean, just let's move on to the Conservatives. Uh, like I said at the beginning, they've won seats in Bishop Auckland, Durham, uh, Blythe Valley. That was a shocking result. Redcar. Um, how do they keep these seats? I mean, you'd think that the kind of the electoral alliance between kind of the southeast seats, the kind of seat I'm setting right now, Wickham, Beaconsfield, and old mining towns, surely uh, they can't please both of them, right? What do they need to do policy-wise to actually appeal to both types of voters that they now represent and ought to kind of look after, as it were? What do they need to do? The Conservatives have five years to really refashion a narrative now and to ram home, I think, a few central changes to um, the British administrative state. The first of which is obviously getting Brexit over the line. Now, Mm. I think we'll get into this about how this is trickier than it sounds and much trickier than the way than uh, the way in which Johnson has spelled it out. Um, But if he can deliver on the referendum result, then I think he will have earned the trust of these communities for a decade at least. Because this is clearly one of the central issues that mattered to people. Not just Brexit, but what it represented. The fact that people hadn't been listened to. They're sick and tired of politicians just doing what's in their best interest. And Johnson, I I think he's doing what's in his best interest, but he can frame it in a way that he is delivering on a democratic result that has been largely ignored by a careerist parliament. Um, The second thing, which I think is quite central, is they need to develop an industrial strategy. This is absolutely clear. And I think these towns and um, rural communities have clearly seen um, the real wedge end of deindustrialization. And they've had stagnating wages. They've felt a loss of control in their communities. They've seen uh, things move too fast in terms of um, the collapse of local business and industry and the development of large monopolies, large factories in these areas, losing a real sense of community, the collapse in the high street, et cetera, et cetera. And I think it's really central to, um, in a sort of post-Brexit Britain, to refashion the way in which we trade, the way in which we produce goods and services. This is something that I think Dominic Cummings is probably particularly keen on. Um, there was a paper that he released, or in his blog, he talked about a paper that had come out of the University of Sheffield from a physics professor who was talking on how we need to change industrial strategy and create a proper one. Because we just haven't had, and that's been, our industrial strategy has just been to not have one in the past mm. sort of generation. And I think if they can get that right and show that they are starting to reinvest in things like science in local communities then they might be onto something i would caveat that though and say that look there's going to be a point where the conservatives are going to be too much of a broad church i think the real reason that they were able to keep a lot of this support was because of the real threat of corbyn and if you suddenly start to think if we get a better labor party leader that's more uh, palatable to the general electorate and if the lib dems start to pick up their game then the conservatives are going to have to have much more targeted messaging and i don't think they're going to be able to hold this broad coalition together for um, you know beyond two years two three years anyway yeah, I mean, that is interesting. I mean, we talked about Brexit right there. Let's kind of pivot onto what might actually happen. Now, Boris Johnson wants to get a trade deal done and dusted by the end of next year. Just simple yes or no, do you think that's going to happen? No. 
Right. I mean, wh- what do you think will happen then? Um, what do you think is the most likely scenario from now? Because, of course, I mean, a lot of people um, last night and through the early hours of the morning were talking about how with a large majority, he could probably ignore the ERG if he really wanted to. Um, do you think that's something he's countenancing or do you think he'll stick to his rigid deadlines? To be honest, it's very difficult to know. Boris Johnson is somebody that moves with the wind. Uh, ideologically and politically speaking and he's very adept at being able to become malleable to the situation that he finds himself in there's an argument to say that the ERG's power has been reduced because of the sizable majority but you could also say that it's a validation of his tough strategy on um, WTO rules and I think you've got to factor in the the fact that he doesn't seem very keen on alignment of goods and services Mm. and I think when we're considering the nature of any free trade agreement that's going to be a sticking point I do believe that the withdrawal agreement should pass. Um, the question is, when can the trade deal become agreed? Uh, no deal, remember, is back on the table. Uh, people are kind of forgetting this, that um, if we don't get something done by January the 3rd, there's still the January the 31st deadline hanging over our heads. So I do believe that will sort of, that will pass. But the question is, can he get that extension? Um, remember, he's got until the end of the year to do it, at the end of 2020. But... He really needs to get an extension done by June if he wants one, legally speaking. And the reason I don't think we'll have a future trading agreement arranged by the end of the year is because there are so many things we need to look at. We need to look at relationships on security. We need to look at the way in which our data has been shared and our long-term tariff schedules. This is going to take time and the EU are not going to be lenient in this regard. Because what is the future makeup of the European Union going to look like? We've got to remember that there are a lot of different factors at play here. There are countries that are very worried about the weakness of NATO and European, the European Union's role in NATO now that Britain leaves because we were a central player in NATO. There are going to be new leaders that have their own political projects. Places like France are obviously wanting to be a central part of um, the EU now and take the lead on particular forms of security and military strategy now that Britain are gone. But my prediction is probably that we will still be in the single market by the middle of 2021. And Mm -hmm. the the reason I think that is because we're going to need an extension beyond the end of the transition uh, period. And I can't see any real divergence and change in the production of a sort of meaningful um, agreement by that time. Do you think, I mean, a lot of what I was reading, they were talking about maybe getting like a a very simple FTA done by the end of, well, next year, and then just building upon it as time goes by. Do you think that's something he might be considering? Um, In that sense, he gets gets to say, yes, I didn't extend the transition period, but he keeps, we kind of, I mean, the way I kind of envisage it, he kind of whittles away at the transition period, um, clause by clause, until we get to a point where we are at a full free trade agreement. Uh, do you think that's something that he could perhaps look into doing? Um, I mean, politically speaking, from a electoral sense, it is probably a wise thing to do, or potential strategy that you could employ. But I think from a, from a negotiating perspective, that's almost as bad as basically leaving without a deal and then coming back and asking for more. Because ultimately, at that point, when we are out, we don't have the bargaining chips that we had before. Remember, there are a lot of countries that will um, be damaged by a hard Brexit. And you've got to think of places like Spain, you know, even if you think, even if you get the Irish, the Irish border problem, which is another issue altogether. And you've got to think of countries like Spain, 
um, which have you know, huge um, sectors of their um, economic growth come from um, trade with Britain and from tourism. There are other parts of Eastern Europe that will really struggle as well. And I think that ultimately we're going to have to move to a place where um, we use those negotiating chips as effectively as possible. So it might look good in the short run to get some sort of Brexit overline, and then we can talk about the details later. But I don't know if that's necessary. I, it depends on how Nigel Farage shapes up. I think that ultimately he's probably killed off the Farage threat for now. And there's not this threat from an external right wing project. He is the right wing project. Mm. And that's something important to know. Uh, I think the real thing that Johnson will have to do is make sure that he doesn't alienate the people that voted for him because they saw him as the lesser evil compared to Corbyn. And as a result of that, that means that I think he might take a bit more time than he would want to on negotiating a form of Brexit deal. I mean, for what it's worth, I think, take however long it takes to get a free trade agreement done, right? And I think a lot of people in the media mischaracterize the ERG, the Spartans, in the sense that they kind of feel that they're kind of, they've been called headbangers and kind of irrational. But I think for a lot of people in the ERG, people like John Redwood, for example, if they recognize the direction of travel is in the direction that they want it in, I think they'll be happy to give Boris the extra time if that is needed. I don't know what you think about that, but that's what I personally think. Yeah, I think you're probably onto something there. And I do think that there are a lot of people within Parliament now that will see this, rightly or wrongly, as some form of resolution to Brexit. And a lot of people will. A lot of people have concerns in their own constituencies beyond Brexit. They've got other issues that they need to sort out. And as you say, they might just sort of give Johnson a bit more leniency to, you know, navigate Brexit. I mean, an interesting question will be what happens to the Department for exiting the EU? Is that going to be abolished? Who's how are we going to negotiate Brexit? Who's going to be in charge of it? Um, yeah. Whether it's going to be Gove or somebody like that, I I really don't know. But uh, I think because of the way in which Johnson has shaked up Parliament, and you've got to remember, there are about 30% of new Conservative MPs uh, in Parliament are newly elected. And mm. these to be effectively Johnson loyalists. They stood on the Johnson manifesto. And that means, I think, there's going to be a great degree of discipline within the party when it comes to any form of future um, Brexit sort of manoeuvring. I, I imagine there will be far less jostling and politicking there than there would be in somewhere like the Labour Party. Mm. Um, yeah, the other side of coin. What about the what of the pro-European Union movement now? Do you think it's all over? I mean, I have to say, Gina Miller was looking pretty glum on the BBC this uh, in the early hours of the morning. Do you think the pro-European Union movement is over for now, at least until the next generation? Is the question settled? Uh, well, there will always be a few that still think we should rejoin, and there will be people that even if we pass the withdrawal agreement and then leave there will be people that think we should still rejoin and then adopt the euro sign up to the european army and all the other sort of institutions there um but i do think that strategically speaking the people's vote campaign need to really you know um, rethink strategy and if i think they had any sense about them they would give up and push for a soft Brexit. Because there's still a lot on the table, remember? Like, we could still have 
forms of dynamic alignment. We could remain in the single mm -hmm. market and the customs union. And I think they need to pick their battles carefully. And the fact is the Lib Dems have had a bit of a poor performance tonight. And that's partly because they're fairly extreme revoke strategy. And that's something that needs to be considered. Having said that, if we're we could well be presented with a no deal revoke dichotomy again. That could be something that we're in. If we're facing that, there might be people that say, look, this you know, we need to um, revoke here and then we can maybe start the process of renegotiation again. I think that's obviously slightly macabre and sinister. And I, I, I'd imagine <laughs> that isn't for the purpose of getting on with Brexit. It's for just stopping the situation altogether. But the Remainers, I think, need to refocus their efforts on other areas now if they want to be pragmatic about this. Um, and I, I'd finally say as well, because I mean, I think the Remainers have a lot and the second referendum lot have a big part to play in this tonight. I really think mm -hmm. they do, because I think had they not been as brutal on soft Brexiteers, had they not turned their guns straight away on things like the Norway agreement and the, the, the sort of Eurosceptics that wanted close relationships with Europe, uh, I do genuinely think we may be out of the European Union already. But their unwillingness to form and fashion any sort of compromise due to a combination of you know, poor planning and a bunch of egos that are running their buildings has <clears throat> culminated in basically the potential confirmation of what could be quite a hard Brexit. Yeah, I mean, let's just talk about one final point, because the other story in the election was Scotland. Uh, so the SNP won nearly 50 seats in Scotland. Do you think what's going to happen with Scottish independence? Obviously, Nicola Sturgeon was on every single news channel yesterday demanding that Scotland's voice be heard. Uh, do you think Boris will allow an independence referendum? I mean, I think we both know the answer to that. I just don't see it happening at the minute uh, under any circumstance. Yeah, I mean, I mean, firstly, this is one of the most fascinating questions because the real thing that people should be thinking about is what now? because there's been some slight resolution on the Brexit conversation. It's obviously going to rumble on for a long, long time. But the question of the union is now the central thing. If we are definitely leaving the European Union, what does this mean for the nature of our relationship with Scotland? And what does this mean for a potentially unified uh, or reunified Ireland? And I don't see Johnson really giving Sturgeon a second referendum at this point. I think strategically it doesn't make any sense. Um, he will probably probably play the line look we had one brexit referendum we've had one scottish referendum we should get on with this and think about the real issues facing the country but this will continue to rumble on for a while and we could be in catalonia territory you've got to remember mm -hmm. that this catalonian government um had a referendum that was illegal and deemed constitutionally illegal but people voted in it anyway and people felt like i mean that has been the burning question in spanish politics for the sort of past two years and it'll be interesting to see if we get to that moment whether Sturgeon tries to find some way to constitutionally override the previous referendum result and force um, some sort of legitimate referendum through um, Scottish Parliament. I think it is what is interesting about that is that a lot I mean even though the SNP did very very well um, the unionist parties as a collective and I guess it's always a bit risky when you start talking about like adding votes together, but the Unionist Party is still giving them a good fight, right? I mean, all right, the SNP upped their seat share, but unionism in Scotland is not dead as a force, as it were. 
No, you're right. And the SNP's main campaign force wasn't for a second referendum. They mm. were trying to curb the worst excesses of um, a Johnson Brexit deal. And that was what people got together behind. People were voting a lot of the time for the SNP to keep out the Tories, remember, because there are actually a lot of areas where the Conservatives are doing quite well. I mean, they've done traditionally very well, particularly in Scottish Parliament. They're mm. doing very well. Um, not so well, obviously, in the, in the sort of Westminster um, makeup. So, yeah, it, it, you could interpret that Scottish result in multiple ways, as you say. Is it a signal for independence? Probably not, but it's definitely a sign that the SNP are going to be directing the discourse of unionist politics in the coming two years. I think um, we might have to wait for the Holyrood elections in 2021 to see how much the SNP's kind of domestic policies in Scotland actually play on people's minds. Because from what I'm hearing, from what I'm reading, um, SNP rule in Scotland has been quite a disaster for health, for education, um, etc., etc. So maybe we'll have to wait till 2021 for the Scottish people to actually give an objective verdict on Nicola Sturgeon. I don't know what you think about that, but I don't think they've had the best time in government to be frank. No, no. I read a stat in The Economist, which was as a result of the SNP's education policies, children have lost on average about a year's worth of education in that country. Mm. And every time you juxtapose English education uh, outcomes compared to Scottish ones, whether it's the number of working class kids from the country going to university, whether it's the levels of sort of literacy and numeracy, uh, England seems to outperform Scotland every time. That's just on that's just on uh, education, and that's not even before we dig into the way in which that they've run their budgets, the way mm. in which they have um, run their uh, health service, because obviously they have a, you know quite heavy Devo Max in some of these scenarios. Um, mm. So yeah, maybe we'll see. But as we say, it depends on who, it depends on how the new Scots Tories do. Ruth Davidson leaving, I think, is a big big loss for them. And I don't think they will make the gains that they would have done under Davidson. But that's with my limited knowledge of Scottish politics, I must add. Yeah, I mean, just to finally end, uh, just on a more holistic kind of philosophical level, what do you feel about our country's future? Are you optimistic, pessimistic? Do you think in five years' time you're going to look back on this and be like, you know what, people up and down this country made the right decision? Or do you think people are going to end up regretting it? Obviously, it's difficult to say, but... We love making predictions on this podcast, so uh, <laughs> I'd love to hear what you think. Yeah, I mean, I'm not somebody that likes to make too many value judgment on parties and try not to get party political, but I am incredibly worried as a result of this election. I think that the damage to democracy that could be done by a party that avoids scrutiny at every possible turn, that has managed to frame themselves as the last bastions of democracy, despite avoiding every possible big interview, despite creating an arena of lies and misrepresentation, a party that doesn't seem to be concerned about the potential state of the union in a way that they um, they could do. What I'm wondering is, how's this party going to fight a global recession? How's it going to deal with issues of climate change? Because Brexit is one issue that they are probably with the public mood on. But when the Johnson government faces a big crisis, like any government does, it might be on a case of foreign policy. It might be in the face of another global financial crisis. It could be when we are facing a, you know, a no deal cliff edge. 
these are issues that I'm not sure I know how the Johnson government is going to to deal with. Um, but having said that, I think that it signals a fascinating realignment in British politics. And what I'm hoping is that there will be a birth of new ideological projects that offer something different to either socialism or neoliberalism or even not not even social democracy because social democracy i think has potentially had its day we need some fresh ideas and to solve the world's most pressing problems at the moment i'm just begging for somebody to step up to the plate throw down the gauntlet and really take the challenge to the two main parties Fantastic. I think we've done a very thorough analysis. I'm going to be putting the live recordings in as well. Um, cheers for joining me this morning. Go get some sleep now, Tom. Or finish your uni book. Whatever comes first. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I'm, I'm really on Foucault's governmentality at the moment. And I don't know if I can really deal with that when digesting the result. I think I'll go crazy thinking about the, um, the government of the self and all the rest of it. Um, but we'll see how that goes. Yeah, get some bed. I'm going to go to bed very soon too. (laughs) Uh, Cheers for coming on, Tom. No worries, mate. Pleasure.